Revelation chapter 17, if you'll turn your Bibles there very quickly, we're going to move through some material that most of you are familiar with. I was asking my wife um, some things. She said, well, there are several people who weren't here when you preached through Revelation. How many were not here when I preached through Revelation? Yeah, um, that's a significant number. So we're going to go through Revelation. Um, and I've just always just kind of assumed you kind of heard this all. And I've referenced it many, many times um, in, our, in our prophecy studies of the minor prophets. Uh, and maybe one day I'll do it as a Bible study in Holmes or something. I don't know that I'm prepared to preach through it again. Um, but we come to Revelation 17. You say, well, wait a minute. We were in 13 last week. You said you're going to finish 13. The key to understanding 13 is 17. 17 is the explanation passage where the angel explains some things to John that were images that had never been seen by anyone else before. And that is a very key thing in prophecy. Uh, and when we look at prophecy of end times, uh, we don't just come into a passage and just make stuff up. We look at it, we examine it, we compare it to other scriptures, and we allow the scripture to interpret scripture. Uh, we use Daniel to help us interpret Revelation. Uh, we use Genesis to help us interpret Revelation. Uh, we, we use the Old Testament uh, and we bring it over as directly as we can without us meddling with it. And you might say, well, isn't, doesn't everyone do that? You would think, but the problem is that we don't do that and it's created some problems uh, for example, I still deal extensively uh, because this is the predominant position is Revelation 13 is about two people, uh, the Antichrist and the false prophet, uh, which is contrary to the schematic that God's given us in Daniel where the beasts coming out of the sea and out were nations, they were empires. And yet we have transposed that and we made the, um, the ten horns into ten men, ten kings, and we've transformed the beast into a man. And so we switched them. Instead of the ten men following in the, or giving themselves over to the will of this nation, ten kings, we switch it and we make uh, ten nations um, subservient to one man rather than ten men subservient to one nation. Uh, and kings can represent their nations, but beasts do not represent individuals anywhere in prophecy that I can find. And so we come to chapter 17, and John is again confronted with this image. Uh, we have referenced it a little bit in Revelation 13 we read last week. Let's go ahead and read 17, um, and we'll pick up verse 7. I know this breaks into the dialogue a little bit, um, but the prior verses deal with the woman that rides the beast. I don't know that she is uh, necessarily a sign of the times because she uh, has been there for all of the nations, for all of the empires. She is nothing new. Um, her demise is new. And I believe her demise is tied into the seven-year peace treaty um, that uh, the ten nations are going to conjoin for. Um, but let's go ahead and pick up verse 7. It says, But the angel said to me, Why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. And so there's the beast from Revelation 13, the first beast. Revelation 13 is the beast with seven heads and ten horns. This is what John saw there, and it went about some activity. So the angel's going to explain to him. It says, the beast that you saw 
was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. So there is a past element, a present element, and a future element. And the future element is the one that will be destroyed by Christ himself. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. And so there is a portion of the history where it seems like the beast is brought back to life. Uh, in verse 9, here's the mind which has wisdom. All right? When you hear this, here is the mind which has wisdom. Here's the interpretation. Here is the wisdom. Here is the uh, understanding comes. Uh, it says the seven heads are seven mountains which the, on which the woman sits. And of course, everyone says, well, seven mountains, that's Rome. It must be the Roman Catholic Church. The woman sits on the seven mountains. Um, and that's probably an interpretation that you are very familiar with because it is very prevalent. Uh, the problem is, is that lots of cities in, Rome, in Italy are built around seven mountains because that was a favorite thing for the Romans to do. And so they would identify seven hills uh, and they would build in that setting. It was kind of a superstitious thing. And uh, so that's just been kind of a distraction. Uh, he's, she's gonna, the angel's going to go on and explain what that means. Uh, what are these seven mountains? It says there are also seven kings. So the seven mountains are really referring to a political entity. Now, I know this says there are also. Um, this could also be translated, these are also seven kings. And so I look at this and I look at the pattern of Daniel and we see a, headed, a multi-headed beast. And that's weird. Nowhere is the angel going to try to explain what a beast is. doesn't have to. It's already been explained to Daniel. Here's what a beast is. The ten horns aren't going to really be explained either because Daniel saw multi-horned beasts. And we know that that was the Median and Persians. And we, we know it represents uh, a conglomeration. If there's multiple horns, uh, like uh, Greece was broken down into four, and so that one prominent horn, which is Alexander the Great, an individual, was broken off four, grew in its place, which is his four generals who were individuals. And those four generals created four Grecian nations underneath them. Uh, divided the Greek Empire into three, or four, sorry, four groups uh, geographically. Um, and we go from there. So... We already have that schematic drawn for us in Daniel. We don't have to have an explanation of those. But this is something really strange, is a multi-headed beast. And so the angel says, this part, you don't have any prior prophetic uh, interpretation. You don't have any prior contact with that. This is a new uh, vision you're seeing, these multi-heads. So I'm going to give you an extended description of them. They are... Seven mountains, seven kings. And the woman sits, has been sitting on them. And these seven are not, we find out, uh, together. They're not at one time. We are looking at mountain kings. We are looking at emperors or entities that are momentous. They are mountainous. They are the pinnacles. And particularly because prophecy is focused on Israel, we're looking for those national entities, those empires, um, those kings that had authority over Israel. 
particularly. And it's going to go farther. Okay, so you're looking for five, I call them mountain kings. Five of them, it says seven. I'm sorry, seven mountain kings. Five of them, is, he's, she, he is told, uh, five of them have already fallen. It says five have fallen. So five are gone. They've come and gone. So they are historical entities of the past. Five of these mountain kings have come and gone. Okay, so we're beginning to see that what we have painted for us in these heads, multi-heads, is the history of all the nations, not just one empire, but the all the empires painted for us that over which reigned over Israel. And so five have fallen. We go back to Egypt and Assyria, and we can go through uh, Babylon, Media, Persia, and Greece. Those are the five empires of the world that had authority over Jerusalem, over Israel as a people. Egypt would have been in Egypt. Okay? Uh, and Assyria would have been in circumferencing Jerusalem, and then God miraculously delivered Jerusalem from their hand. And remember the lepers went out there and everyone was gone and everyone was starving in town and they were out there going, whoa, whoa, we, this isn't right, we got to go tell everybody. So that was the Assyrians. And, uh, and of course, we know Babylon, Media, Persia, and Greece uh, come after. So those are the five that were fallen. One, the angel says, is. One is in the present tense to John. One of these kings is, and obviously we can look and identify that John lived during the Roman period, and so that creates the sixth. And so the other has not yet come. So there's one head of this beast representing all of the empires of nations of men that's still future to John. So we're getting to the future. So there's one yet to come. One of these heads of this beast hasn't come into being yet in John's day. And it says, when he comes, in verse 10, when he comes, he must continue a short time. And the beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth. Now, we're get, let me get to verse 11. So the, the seventh head... The seventh head is going to be a future one to John after the Roman Empire. It's going to be born out of Rome because Daniel tells us that the Rome principles will be found in it. It'll be born out of Rome. Uh, it'll be follow those same Roman guidelines, if you will. Those, the iron will be there, but it'll be deteriorated, mixed with clay. Um, but it'll be there. And so it'll be weakened, but the concepts and principles of Rome will be there and its future, but it's going to be a short one in terms of its power over Israel and specifically over the world. And so there's a future one to John, but it's not the last one. All right? So if we're saying we're in the end times, what should we be looking for? We should be able to identify an empire between Rome and today that has come and gone, but not completely gone, because it says that the next head is going to still be there while the other one's around. It's not going to die off because of the uniqueness of the last entity. The last entity doesn't destroy its predecessor. It's very different. Remember we talked about the different horn? didn't destroy three other nations. It supplanted them. It pushed them out of its territory and made room for it to grow in its, own, in its plot. But it didn't destroy them. Uh, the Babylonians were destroyed by the media Persians, that empire. Uh, the Persians were destroyed by the Greeks, that empire. Um, this is going to be different. There's going to be a weird relationship between them. 
And so we're looking for an intermediate empire that has influence over Israel, uh, that reached some uh, height of power, uh, that has already subdued and, and really didn't have a height of power for very long, uh, a brief period of time comparatively speaking. And uh, so we should be able to identify that nation and uh, if we're in the end times. If that nation hasn't come to be, then we're not even close. Why? Because that nation has to come into being and disappear from the scene, and then the last empire should come. So there should have been an intermediate empire, and uh, my contention is that intermediate empire has come, has done what Scripture says it was supposed to do, and is still present because it says it will be present while the last one is still here or is doing its work, even to the point of its destruction. And that is the ones, those are the ones who had authority over Israel um, to grant it statehood. And that would have been Great Britain. And so the British Empire um, had authority over Israel, uh, came into power really relatively... Uh, for a brief period in terms of being able to subdue all of its enemies. It was really uh, a brief time and uh, um, in terms of empires and how long they last. Uh, it, was, it says that it would be slain with a sword and yet it would survive. Uh, it would be rekindled as something else. And a sword in prophecy generally refers to war, to battle, to warfare. And so we're looking for a nation that was decimated by uh, war. And I would contend that World War I and II um, did that to Great Britain. And while they still had influence over much of the globe, um, their power base as an empire was really gone. But they really lost it even earlier under the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, economically, they lost their nation then uh, to the Bank of England and to the Rothschilds. And so we find uh, this entity has come and gone. So that's really not a sign of our times other than the fact that that's already history. So that means we have to be in the final era. So now we have something really strange in verse 11. The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth. And the question is the eighth what? How many heads were there? Seven. What is this eighth? What is the eighth? Eighth what? and is of the seven, and is going to perdition. So now we have a beast that is in Revelation 13, the second beast, which I believe is identical to the eighth head the angel is referring to. That will be the final empire that will go to perdition or destruction by God. And it is born out of the seven, um, and so it's still connected. It's still in that beast of beasts realm, of the nations, but it's going to be an eighth one and it's going to be connected to the others. And so now we go back to Revelation 13. So when we come to Revelation 13, 11, and we find a beast, a second beast showing up, we think, well, these are two separate entities. But did you notice that the angel connected the second beast to the first one as an eighth head of the first beast. So the angels connected these. They aren't two separate entities in terms of their identification. One is a large representation of the history of the nations 
And in the very end of that, in the appendage of that, rises up this very different nation, so different that John describes it as a separate beast. But the angel says, no, it's not a separate beast. It is just like the other seven, but it has a different appearance. And it is different. And you have to think, as soon as you hear that, you have to go back to Daniel and say, oh, there was a different, there's a little horn that was different than all the others. That's going to go to perdition. And so this final head is the same as the little horn and is going to be the final entity, national entity, but it's a representation of all of the age of nations from Egypt to Christ. So let's look at this other beast who is the eighth head of the first beast. He came up out of the earth, it says in verse 11. Now, if you go back to uh, verse 1, it says that that beast with seven heads came up out of the sea. And by the way, in Revelation 17, the angel says, the seas that you saw were all peoples, tongues, and nations. So when you see a nation come out of the sea, you're looking for a nation that came to its power by conquering other peoples, tribes, and nations. They came to power by conquering in the traditional I'm going to come into your territory with my army. I'm going to take you out. And I'm going to take over your territory and your people. And you are now part of my empire. But this beast is different. It's going to come out of the earth. It is going to come out. And this, again, I, I think ties directly to the Daniel passage where it uses this, this gardening term for this nation. It's going to get its property from these other three nations. And then it's going to just grow quickly out of that soil. And I believe this is a reference to a nation that's going to come to power by the development of its natural resources rather than by conquering others and stealing their gold. Okay, so if, when Nebuchadnezzar uh, was running out of gold, he, what did he do? He went back down to Jerusalem and got some more. He pilfered that temple, what, three times, four times, possibly. Okay, this is a nation that's not doing that. They're coming out of the earth they're coming out of their natural resources, not out of the, all the peoples. And it says, what else we find? But he had a, two horns like a lamb. Okay, we're looking for an entity that has two horns. And a two-horn entity, we learned from Daniel, is a conglomeration really of two nations with the second nation, the, the latter nation, being greater. Uh, the Medes and the Persians was an animal with two horns. Okay, so we're looking for a nation that has a very, very, very tight relationship with its predecessor nation. And that predecessor nation, the seventh head, would have been Great Britain. So we're looking for a nation that has a, a very close relationship um, and really just kind of takes over Great Britain's uh, role as empire of the earth. But he also is like a lamb, and that goes along with Daniel saying he... He has the eyes of a man, like a lamb. And John's terminology refers to this idea that from appearance, he looked like a lamb. And a lamb is always a reference to Christianity. The lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And so, looks like a Christian nation, um, but he spoke like a dragon. And remember, back in Daniel, what was it? He had eyes like a man, but he had a mouth that spoke pompous words. That we're going to look at how a nation speaks, and that's their documents. We talked about that. 
and that we, there was a, a real arrogance and a really an opposition to God in the founding of that nation and the, uh, and the functioning of that nation. And this is something I'm really working on right now to develop even deeper than what I've done really superficially in the past with some of the documents and statements and the whole idea of how our government works, that it is uh, in opposition to God and its root. And so this is the description. So how, what is the relationship to its predecessor? Verse 12, he exercised all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. And so we find that this is that connection and that connection is not necessarily political. In fact, I would contend that predominantly that connection is economically connected. Um, and that has been the case really since... 1913, we're coming up on the 100-year anniversary of that connection when the Bank of England uh, in, was able to uh, bring the United States to the point of replicating its system of economy um, by instituting the Federal Reserve. And so that President Wilson brought that in and, uh, and basically been unconstitutional since then, if that matters. <laughs> it doesn't matter anymore, really, but... Uh, we, have, we gave up one of the rights that our founding fathers tried to keep for Congress and gave it to a private corporation. And so we have this connection to them, to that previous beast. And now, verse 13, we have more of the identification marks. He performs great signs, that is, wonders. And this, to us, uh, we think of miracles as totally unexplained, unscientific, and can't be proven and just have to be experienced um, and beyond the capacity of man. But this idea of signs is simply uh, things that bring the world into awe, things that amaze people, these signs. And the one sign that we're supposed to look for, number one, the one great work that it does is he makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And uh, that is the sign that is the sign of the end that when you see this you have no doubt in your mind who you're dealing with you're dealing with the final empire on earth when you see it bring fire down and it's very specific here fire down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men and only one nation has ever done those three things and that is the united states we're the only ones who have used atomic weapons on men, in the sight of men, um, that we have actually uh, uh, used it and employed it that way. And that is what atomic weapon is. It, is, it, it exploded at altitude, it rained down fire onto the earth um, in the sight of, in this case, Japanese individuals. Um, and that's right out of the very words of some of the survivors who described it that. It was a beautiful day and it started raining fire. That's their exact words. And these are not godly people. These are no people that had any reference to Scripture. These were just the survivors, and that's how they described it that day. It was just a beautiful, normal day, and then it started raining fire on us. So that's happened. Um, and that is 60 years ago, yeah? About 60 years ago? 55? 47? Wasn't it 47 that happened? 45? So we're getting there. Okay? We're not into my lifetime yet, though. 
before my life. But that should tell us something. This has been, this already happened a while ago, a generation ago, that evidence had already been performed. It goes on. He deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he has granted to do. Uh, so it wasn't the last sign. It wasn't the last great event, but it was the telling event. Remember, we're looking for elephants, not for little microscopic things. We're looking for big evidences. Um, and so he's able to de deceive those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he has granted to do in the sight of the beast. And again, we already referenced the rest of this with making an image to the beast and then making uh, this economic system. And so we have this description. And, the, and again, I don't want to have to stretch it. I don't like having to manipulate and stretch to try to fit something into current events. And I take issue with some of those that do that. And, uh, and I think that a lot of them are manipulative. So I take this and I want to see the big picture. Because I believe prophecy paints big Detailed, but big. And it should be sufficient for us to identify it in this case, or him when we talk about the man of sin in a few weeks. Um, we should be able to identify them and not push Scripture. And I'm not pressing any of this Scripture. I'm simply taking what Daniel said these were, what the angel said these were, and they describe this entity. And so we have the final empire on earth here. We are not waiting for a revived Roman Empire that is nowhere in Scripture, nowhere in Scripture, ever. We are looking for ten toes, which are these ten horns that are going to really only come to power, the angel says, for an hour. They're going to be very short span. I mean, they're just going to be on their scene for a very short time. And so what we're looking for is this eighth head, this mysterious head, which Paul or John describes as, as its own beast of a totally different nature, and we can see it around us without bending over backwards at all, really, if we take Scripture to mean what it says. And so we find that if we are this far along, we are looking not to Europe anymore, we are not looking into there really for the origin of the man of sin, for the origin of the, of the beast. We aren't looking over there anymore. Um, we are now turning our attention home. That this place, this nation, um, is the one that must stand before God um, and will oppose God to the bitter end and will lead other nations in opposition to God. And we live in that time. And when we begin to realize what our nation is really doing overseas and what policies they are pressing overseas, um, you would be disheartened. They do not represent the Judeo-Christian ethic at all. That we believe we're a Christian nation. Um, what they are uh, propagating is every evil that's in this country is being almost mandated in other countries. And that includes um, women's liberation, uh, exercises and, and, and policies that includes um, use of condoms and uh, the sexualization, the, the, what was it, the, um, there was women's lib and then there was the uh, sexual revolution, there we go, they're pressing that, as well as our form of government, they're pressing democracy. And I believe that all three of those are in opposition to God's moral standards. 
we believe democracy to be good because we've been ingrained with that since we were little. But I find nothing in Scripture supporting that. In fact, I would contend that's where my study is right now and this election cycle has <coughs> really led me into it when I have a choice between this and this and I hear pastors filling pulpit time telling their people who to vote for, um, I'm dismayed. And this week, Billy Graham met with Mitt Romney and suddenly uh, Mormonism is no longer a cult on the Billy Graham website. That should concern you. That's called compromise. And I've had a lot of people say to me, you don't understand, Kirk, we're just selecting a president, not a pastor. Then why do we have to take cult off of the list of, why do we have to take Mormonism off the list of cults? The fact is, is that we are in league in a compromising way with a presidential candidate because we feel compelled to choose the lesser of two evils. Think about that for a minute. Think about the nation you live in that this great Christian nation, the best we can come up with is the choice between two evils. And I would contend that even making that choice um, may be a slap in the face to God himself for the Christian who says they believe that God is the one who sets up kings and kingdoms. So we have around us a fullness of prophetic description fulfilled. We are waiting for what? The last half of, of verse 15. As many as who not worship the image of the beast will be killed. We haven't gotten to 16 fully where you can't buy or sell without the mark of the beast on you. Right now we have it around you. Right now it's in your pocket. It's in your wallet. It's not on you and I'm not afraid to use it because it's the precursor of the mark. I'm not afraid of it, but I am wary and I am careful because I recognize that it's a small step to go from a computer chip on a card to a computer chip in my hand. Yes? That's a very small step. Very small step. It's a step already being taken by many people. And so we're here, we're, we're in the mix of this and um, we are blindly looking for something totally different. And we're going on to Mitt Romney and liking his Facebook page and compromising ourselves left and right all for what? Because we think he's going to promote our agenda. Right? Isn't that why we're going to vote for him? Christians? Because we think he's going to promote our agenda because he's conservative He's at least a Mormon. He has some moral scruples. Um, but nobody's talking about what he did as governor. Are, have you heard about that? About what he did with regard to uh, homosexuality? He condoned it left and right. What he did with regard to the unborn? Uh, pre, the, the candidate, Governor Johnson, has an interesting description that they've put out there where they have rated the actual things that they did as governor. And uh, it was a separate entity, but Johnson liked its results, so he put it out there. And it rated everybody. And Johnson ended up with a pro-life rating of 90% or something. Mitt Romney came out with a pro-life rating of like 40-some percent 
or maybe less. It was really low. And we're wanting to compromise because we think, we believe he's going to promote our agenda. But listen to yourself. Since when do we go to a country to promote the agenda of a church? The Reformation got that wrong. The Catholics got that wrong. And now we've got that wrong. The agenda that we promote is the gospel. I expect sinners to sin. And I'm not going to deceive myself and I think that if I vote for the right person, we can stop abortion. It will never happen. Do you guys remember prohibition? I don't. I wasn't alive. Remember prohibition? Were you alive? 20s. Boy, we're a young church, aren't we? You remember it because you were like right there. <laughs> That's right. We were in this room having prohibition. Remember that? With Billy Sunday and our murder mystery? You guys remember that? That's what he's referring to. That was Billy. He remembers. Um, it didn't work, did it? We got our agenda all the way through the constitutional amendment phase. Did it work? No. So why are we looking to a country that's called Christian but blasts out blasphemy all the time and thinking they're going to promote your agenda and that somehow that works? Our response to this is to look around and pray. And to look around and say, I need to live righteously and godly. And I put no trust in man. Zero. Our young people, Wednesday night, um, they got some of my venting. Huh, Valerie? Andrea was there. They got to hear my venting. Um, Jeremiah says, cursed is the man who trusts in man. And right now, um, based upon that, I think a lot of the church is cursed because we trust more in man than in God. Or we'd be on our knees praying instead of out handing out political flyers and liking Romney's page or Obama's page or Johnson's page. I don't care. We'd be on our knees praying. And not for this election. We'd be praying for the lost around us that need a Savior. We'd be out at the skate park on our knees if we really believed Jesus Christ was coming this soon. And we were trusting in God instead of in man. But the fact is we're more aware of the political position of those around us, including our relatives, than of their spiritual condition. And shame on us. Shame on the church for asking those kind of questions instead of the questions about people's sin and their eternal state. And so our response to a nation identified in this fashion as one that's going to be destroyed by Christ himself is not to participate in it, but if anything, to stand as agents of heaven. Uh, and I can't oppose them. The Bible says you're not going to be able to stop this. I don't want to stop it, really, do we? Do we want to stop this? No, I'm praying, Lord, come. Lord, come. And I'm not going to participate in the process that is fundamentally snubbing God. And say, you don't choose our leaders, we do. We're not fundamentally going to participate in a nation thinking that somehow we can promote godliness without the gospel. Wrong. I mean, I love the guys that brought prohibition forward and they had tender hearts and, and they saw a real need and they recognized the the solutions and, and 
in large measure, it helped our country for, for the time period that was in place. But it isn't the final solution. And I, two weeks ago was the Sunday that all pastors were told to preach politics from their pulpit. Did you know that? That there was a national movement for all pastors to preach who to vote for because they wanted to make sure they get it in before the early voting, before the absentee voting. And I want to say shame on every one of them. This is what we preach. And not party politics. The man you're looking to, and it doesn't matter what candidate you want to go for, the man you're looking for will be the leader of the beast. Whoever wins. Put that into context now. You want to be responsible for that. Is that something we want to engage in or do we want to engage in a counterculture movement that says we honor our country, we pray for our leaders, not against them. But our trust is in Jesus. We're looking for a kingdom not made with hands. I'm not waiting for crime to go down in my society. I'm waiting for crime to go away in Christ's kingdom. I expect sinners to sin. And that's our next study starting next week is the signs of sin. What what it will look like in the end times. And we have plenty given to us in Scripture what to expect. How do we respond? We respond by standing up kind of like the 144,000. I don't want to use that term because I want you to think of that as a church age group. But uh, we stand like them. It says they follow Christ wherever He goes. And they live holy holy, holy, and walk around righteously. They're virgins. They're morally pure. That needs to be our testimony in these times. Not, I'm a conservative, pro-life voter. If that's how you describe yourself to people, think about who you're aligning yourself with. Because it's not with Christ and His kingdom, but it's with the beast and man. So, good challenge here tonight. Um, It should be exciting to you to recognize we are there. We are fully there. There is almost nothing left of Revelation 13 to happen before Christ comes. And what is left can be done very quickly, um, very quickly. So fast, it will make your head spin how fast the rest can be done. And so our response needs to be, i got to get out there and get politically motivated. No, our response needs to be, Lord, come quickly. Find me standing in righteousness and in Christ. And oh, that we would preach the gospel. For the time is short.